Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate your support, and I thank you for tuning in to this new episode of Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Today's episode, we are tackling precision oncology. What in the world is precision oncology and precision medicine? What does it mean? How can we design proper clinical trials in the face of knowing there's a particular mutation in a specific tumor with an available drug that could treat that mutation? I asked Dr. Vivek Subaya, a world-renowned oncologist with amazing expertise in precision oncology, but more importantly, he really rolls up his sleeves, he treats patients, he's a clinician, he runs clinical trials. And this has culminated in him being able to bring more than close to a dozen, I think maybe 10, don't quote me on the actual number, you'll need to ask him, but really many drugs through the FDA approval. These drugs have absolutely helped many patients with cancer. So I wanted to ask Vivek to come on, to, to, to explain to you all, what do we mean by precision oncology? What are the pitfalls? What are the advantages? My goal is that by the end of today's episode, you're scratching your head. My goal is by the end of today's episode, you are asking questions. It is always easy to say, we absolutely always need a randomized controlled trial. It is always easy to say, we absolutely don't need a randomized controlled trials. Absolutes are easy. You just say, we do need to do this 100% of the time, or we don't need to do this 100% of the time. The truth and the correct answer often lies in the middle. There are no absolutes in medicine. Our goal is to always help patients. And to do that, we need to maintain some flexibility and clinical judgment and to shy away from the rigidity of of the academy. Okay, well, I hope you will enjoy this episode on precision oncology with amazing human being, researcher, physician, scientist, and a man that I have admired because of his intellect and his just amazing track record uh, in a very short period of time since he had completed his fellowship. Dr. Vivek Subaya on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, folks, you are in for a treat today. I have the infamous, illustrious Dr. Vivek Subaya with me on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. If you don't know Vivek, you're in trouble because you must know who he is. But um, he's going to introduce himself uh, to you in a little bit. And uh, really, our topic is a little bit more developmental therapeutics, a little bit of precision medicine, precision oncology, and trying to understand what that field really looks like today and what it might look like in the future. 
Vivek, uh, welcome to the show. I, I really, really appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule. I know that uh, you have a lot on your plate. So carving out some time for uh, to come on the podcast means a lot to me and to listeners. But let's talk about you a little bit. Um, what you do, what you work, all of that stuff, and really what got you a little bit, what in, who influenced you to be into oncology, into doing what you're doing right now? Chadi, thank you so much for having me, and thank you uh, so much. I know uh, in these pandemic times, it's been challenging, but uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, uh, to follow you on Twitter and other social media to interact in, uh, during the major meetings. So I'm a faculty and I'm associate professor uh, currently in the Department of Investigation Cancer Therapeutics, which is the phase one clinical trials program at MD Anderson. Uh, also, I'm the medical director of the uh, Clinical Center for Targeted Therapy and the executive director of uh, Cancer Medicine Research for the MD Anderson Cancer Network. So currently, uh, I, uh, my, my role is to run uh, you know, early phase, phase one, phase two basket studies. I'm a PI of over 30 to 40 uh, clinical trials. My research interests are in drug development in rare cancers. And you know, my, my real uh, you know, interest has been uh, leading several first in human and practice changing uh, novel basket studies. The, the first ever histology independent basket study, I was fortunate to be a part of that, uh, which was the Vimirov in a basket study that led to uh, an FDA approval for uh, Vimirafenib, which is a BRAF inhibitor in uh, erdheim chester disease, which is an extremely rare disease. And you know, following that, you know, I served as uh, the global PI for the rare oncology agnostic research, which in this case, we used a combination of BRAF and MEC in cancers of uh, unmet need that harbored a BRAF physics center alteration. And we saw phenomenal responses in this aggressive cancer called anaplastic thyroid cancer. And this became another practice changing study. So this was the first FDA approval uh, for this deadly cancer. Most recently, I was uh, you know, fortunate to uh, lead two selective RET inhibitor trials, uh, selpercatinib and pralcetinib for RET dependent cancers. So last year in 2020, uh, not one, but two uh, RET inhibitors got FDA approved for the treatment of uh, red fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer, thyroid cancer. And in addition, you know, I was also part of the lutbinectidin uh, registration study for small cell lung cancer, and also part of the pemigatinib, which subsequently got approval for a cholangiocarcinoma. In addition, I have, you know, because of the developmental therapeutic work I do, I do a lot of radiopharmaceutical studies. And you know, one of my first ever radiopharmaceutical study was radium-223 for osteosarcoma, which was the first ever investigated study that I wrote as a fellow. In addition, again, uh, you know, these are the stuff I've done. But you know, my main thing is that as a major advocate for precision oncology, I-, I We're, we're I, gonna talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I to, uh, Vivek, you've said a lot of big words that I wanna try to dissect and simplify because- Absolutely. Some of the listeners uh, may not be obviously as well versed in what you are saying. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, my philosophy is simplify. So you said basket studies for fellows who are listening, students, or even people who are not in medicine. What, 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 are, you, what are you alluding to? So uh, there are two types, at least, uh, of precision oncology studies. One is the umbrella study, and the other one is the basket study. The umbrella study is 
you focus on one particular tumor type, wherein, for instance, uh, you know, we take lung cancer, we sequence lung cancer patients. If they have an ALK aberration, they go on an ALK inhibitor. If they have a BRAF aberration, they go on a BRAF inhibitor. That's an umbrella study. One histology, multiple arms. Basket study is a histology independent study design, wherein the patients uh, could harbor, could have any tumor type, but as long as they have uh, their tumors harbor a single alteration. You know, for instance, our road basket study. So patients with any cancer uh, that harbors a, a BRAF V600E alteration like anaplastic thyroid cancer, GIST, high cell leukemia, any of those patients will be eligible, histology independent, but based on their genomic, that's a basket study. Very important uh, to clarify that. The other thing that you mentioned is because I'm trying to set the stage into some of the tough questions I'm going to ask you. You know, you come on healthcare unfiltered, there are no easy questions here. Absolutely. One of the other things you said is precision oncology. And, you know, there are two, two things. Like when people talk precision oncology or precision medicine, you know, I mean, one could say, we, goodness, we, we always have done precision medicine. We try to treat the right patient at the right time with the right drug. Uh, I don't know, pick your chemotherapy of choice. Um, five pluriuracil is what, like a pyrimidine analog or something that, you know, I mean, uh, Taxol, uh, it targets uh, something in the cell cycle and the tubules, microtube, whatever it is. Is it just like precision oncology, a little bit more of a fancier way of what we're doing with chemotherapy? You know, not necessarily. See, the thing is that the, the chemotherapy paradigm is a traditional paradigm wherein we take a drug, we throw, we treat patients with a particular cancer and try to see, try to, you know, look for a response rate. So precision oncology or precision medicine, right, in the right sense is targeting a biomarker, targeting a genetic alteration and delivering the right drug to the right patient with the right biology at the right time. Let me give you a brief overview. The fundamental premise of oncology, indeed all of medicine, is that every disease, even an untreatable one, warrants a diagnosis. The light microscope uh, that was invented in 1500s is still used to diagnose cancer. You know, peering uh, at the surface of the cells to determine the tissue of origin renders a diagnosis. You know, if there's a patient that presents with a lung mass, we do a biopsy and we take it and see those cells under a microscope to say if it's non-small cell lung cancer or small cell lung cancer. However, if we are able to improve our ability to treat cancer, uh, we must sup, you know, supplement the centuries old technology with the molecular microscope. And this is precision oncology. Genomic testing permits interrogation of the inside of the cell and definition of a tumor's precise coding sequence. And again, personally, I believe that genomics is the diagnosis and is the most powerful argument for its universal use that every patient afflicted with cancer deserves a diagnosis.
I remember a viewpoint you wrote in JAMA Oncology. Um, it's actually one of my favorite ones. Um, I forgot the title, but it's it's almost similar to this, that every patient should be sequenced or, or kind of thing. But uh, I wanted to answer two things for listeners again. One is when you say sequencing, um, and again, please don't take us into basic science bench research because then I'll lose the listeners and they'll take a nap. A little bit, just briefly, how you do that, like what do we mean by sequencing? But really the more important question that people might ask, why should I sequence if I don't have a drug for every mutation I may find? So, you know, there's a concern is, sure, I'll sequence, I'll identify these aberrations, and I'll end up using carbotaxel. Of course, clinical trials are different because you're, you're doing clinical trials, you may have drugs, but let's say somebody general in the community who's not doing clinical trial, that's often what we hear. So let's talk about what you do to sequence the tumors, and then is there a benefit to sequencing if you might detect so many abnormalities and then you're stuck with saying, well, what am I going to do with this information? I really don't have drugs that target this particular gene. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, to take it to, uh, you know, the basic level, let me precisely then define precision medicine. So this is an emerging approach, you know, for disease treatment and our prevention that takes into account the individual variability in genes, environment, lifestyle for each person. Again, I think this is something, the def uh, definition of precision medicine that, that is there in the NIH as well. And it's a form of medicine that uses information about a person's genes, proteins, and our environment to prevent or diagnose disease. What is precision oncology? This is a field in oncology defined by customizing treatment to an individual's molecular profile. And we'll also be uh, talking about biomarker. So what is a biomarker? It is a characteristic that is objectively measured or evaluated as an indicator of abnormal biologic process, a pharmacological or biologic process to a therapeutic intervention. So uh, let me give you why we need precision oncology and why we need a lot more research in precision oncology. We are still scratching the surface of precision oncology. You know, we haven't really deployed precision oncology in the real world. So between 2003 and 2013, you know, there are several cancer drugs have been approved by the EMA and the US FDA. But unfortunately, the total mean improval, uh, improvement in survival, in overall survival was only around like 3.4 months. Routinely, you know, we see that new medicines that confer an additional survival of mere weeks to even days with just statistical p-value victories are hailed as major breakthroughs in oncology. The randomized clinical trial, considered as a gold standard for clinical trial, has failed to render cures or long-term survival for majority of patients suffering from advanced malignancies. In 2021, in diseases such as metastatic pancreatic cancer, 90% of the patients are not alive after two years of diagnosis. Diseases like glioblastoma, 90% of the patients are not alive after three to four years of diagnosis. Despite a multitude 
of traditional randomized control studies. The high cost of these conventional trials, the large number of patients receiving futile therapy on control arms, and the lack of biomarker selection hampers progress. So here, in a here, in a this the, the questions you ask, uh, you know, makes me you know take a step back and talk about the amazing genomic and immunological breakthroughs that we are seeing in oncology. The pace of genomics and immunological breakthroughs in oncology is accelerating and making uh, it likely that large randomized studies are increasingly become outdated before their completion. The control arms become completely useless you know, at the time when the trial is published. Traditional clinical research practice paradigms must adapt to the reality unveiled by genomics. So how do, we do that? But how do we do that though? I agree with you. I think you know, we can't really keep doing clinical trials like we've done five decades ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how, I mean, when you say adapt to the genomics, because, you know, I mean, you still have, well, help me understand what you mean by you don't need to do randomized controlled trials anymore, and you need a new paradigm. Elaborate on that a little bit. So, uh, you know, rather than one size fits all monotherapy, I think we need to take a step back and think about precision oncology. The central tenet of precision oncology paradigm requires, again, I, I keep repeating this again, delivery of the right drug at the right time to the right patient. Again, the current model of precision oncology, what we have right now, usually matches single agents to patients with late stage refractory, molecularly very complex disease. And this is suboptimal. Optimizing targeted therapy requires a departure from traditional paradigms. Deploying uh, gene-targeted agents earlier in the disease course when the tumor is less complicated at the genomic level and administering uh, immunological agents to patients with complex cancers harboring uh, mutations that like for instance with high mutational burden and also moving away from monotherapy to customized combinations. Again, genomics just represents the tip of the iceberg. In the future, and I, I, I fervently believe that panomic testing that includes transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics, and immunogenomics will paint a more complete molecular uh, in a portrait of tumor. Again, ask me. But there's no uh, question, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Paint a better picture of the tumor, no question, right? Yeah. No question. It's like when you have a house, you can describe, this is a big house, nice yard, looks great. Versus you describe the bathroom, you describe the living room, you describe the dining room, and you're more like the, 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 the everything, right? Mm -hmm. You're describing the house versus everything in that house. No one would argue with that. The pushback that you get is, okay, shouldn't you try to demonstrate or prove that by knowing that molecular underpinning of the tumor and treating based on the knowledge of that molecular underpinning improves the lives of people or patients compared with treating them without that knowledge. So, you know, if you take in a randomized fashion, I mean, 
Or is it what you're proposing that because the era has changed, you really cannot do randomized control trials in that setting? I'm trying just to understand the point of view you're bringing up. So let's go back to the history of uh, precision oncology, right? So, uh, you know, we usually use the word magic bullet, right? So over 100 years ago, I think it was Paul Ehrlich who introduced the concept of magic bullet cures in oncology. Again, for 90 years, we didn't realize that. Until maybe a couple of decades ago, we had the first you know, targeted therapy, which is a real targeted therapy, imatinib, uh, which you know, targeted the altered BCR-able kinase, which is pathognomonic of chronic myelogenous leukemia. Again, you know, CML became the poster child for precision oncology in liquid tumors. Before the imatinib era, the median survival was four years. Today, the life expectancy approaches a normal lifespan provided that treatment is started at the time of diagnosis. Delaying treatment, even for the CML patient until late stage disease, as what we do as standard of care in solid tumors, delay the treatment until late stage disease, renders even the breakthrough targeted therapies for CML ineffective. See, early successes of precision oncology has been the Herceptin for head to positive breast cancer and EGFR for lung cancer, anaplastic, you know, a lymphoma kinase inhibitor in uh, alkabarant uh, lung cancers. And again, we yeah, don't, forget, don't forget my rituxan, my rituxan for lung Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my absolutely. God. So all of which have significantly impacted the outcome, but albeit not to the extent seen in CML. All right. So what we have today, in, we have massively sequenced the genome. All right. The sequencing cost of a single human genome has dropped in a breathtaking manner from $3 billion in 2003 to about $1,000. You can get it as low as like even $500 in some countries. And hundreds of actionable aberrations have been discovered. Thousands of drugs with novel mechanism of action, including gene-targeted therapy and immunotherapy are being identified. Yet we have just witnesses, witnessed a few triumphs in oncology. The thing is that I would never say never. The thing is that, you know, let me give you an example. So when I started, uh, you know, the, this, this job in 2012, when I saw a patient with a BRAF alteration, I would be happy. When I saw a patient with ALK aberration, I would be happy. When I saw a patient who had like, say 30, 40, 50, 60 aberrations in 2012-13, I thought, oh my God, you know, these patients are done for and I wouldn't be able to target these patients. Fast forward five years, right now, if I see a patient who has 30, 40 aberrations, I get excited because these are the patients that respond amazingly well to immunotherapy. So never say never. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, genomic testing is not just for matching to targeted therapy. It provides diagnosis in many instances. It can provide prognosis, right? Many times we can also think about drugs which we, we should not be giving patients. For instance, genomic testing, you know, if it shows a KRAS, you know we should not be giving ceteximab to these patients. And if we find a BRCA alteration, you know, we, we would do genetic counseling. So it's, it's diagnostic, prognostic, and has genomic implications as well. And, and, and so, you know, science is rapidly evolving. 
And, and, and so it's, it's the best time to be in oncology. Of course, the worst time to be in oncology as well, given the, the <laughs> complexity of who's going to pay for it and stuff. But the science is so much fascinating. Again, 10 years ago, even when I was doing my training, I don't think so. Immunotherapy beyond Ipilimumab was just approved when I was finishing my fellowship. And you know, immunotherapy is the ultimate example of precision treatment. You know, checkpoint inhibitors activate the immune machinery. Still, we don't know why it works amazingly well in some patients and does not work well in many patients. And these checkpoint inhibitors enable the innate ability uh, of, the, of the immune system to recognize and destroy the tumors. So the immune system is both personalized and precise. And we also realize that the immune apparatus distinguishes malignant cells from the normal cells. And we are finding like alterations like PDL1 uh, amplification associated with a 90% response rate in Hodgkin's disease. Are treated with PD-1 are a, a very, very high mutational burden or a mismatch repair, uh, you know, defective patient. You know, immunotherapy offers striking, striking responses in yeah, these patients. I, I, like, I like what you mentioned about there are certain elements in knowing the molecular profile that might tell you not to use a particular agent. I think you mm -hmm. brought the KRS as an example. I like that you mentioned it might provide prognostic value because I do think sometimes the prognosis, identifying the prognosis is rather uh, critical. I think that what people might say who are listening to this, I think they might say you're, you're being a little bit unfair by presuming that what we have currently in the new therapies match what we're talking about Gleevec. I mean, Gleevec is a home run, let's face it. I mean, right? I mean, you just said, when you have someone who gets Gleevec, th these patients have almost a normal life expectancy. And, you know, it's really not what you see even in many of these targeted therapies, you see pretty modest progression-free survival. And sometimes we don't know about overall survival. So I guess, my question to you is, if we don't have studies, how can we define the benchmark of what we're trying to improve upon? You know, for example, pick your mutation and pick your drug. Is four months enough? Is three months enough? Um, how do we know the actual incremental value if we don't have a Comparator arm. I'm just trying to understand if you were today to design a clinical trial and you're a very, very, you're an excellent trialist. I mean, I can't believe you have that many trials in less than a decade from fellowship. It's crazy. I mean, we, we're going to get into that because it's crazy. But how would you design it in a way that A, the patients will hopefully benefit, B, you really are able to be certain then what, that what you are seeing is incremental compared to standard of what people are doing. I, I think that's really where people, the, the skeptics, I would say, might, might struggle in trying to understand. So how, what do you tell the skeptics about precision medicine and sequencing? No, no, absolutely, absolutely. So there are two things. One is, uh, one is a question about, the first is a question that I need to resolve that's still lingering that you asked is about the randomized study. Of course, there was a randomized study done in precision medicine. It's yeah. called, it was called the Shiva trial. Right? Yeah. The Shiva trial was negative. Yeah. And it was often mentioned as an example 
to bolster the argument that precision medicine is a failure so my point of view is shiva trial is important as it demonstrated that a randomized precision medicine trial could be conducted and i'll stop at that however if you closely read the paper approximately 80 80% of the patients in the in the shiva trial were matched to single agent mtor or a single agent hormone anti hormonal therapy so from the shiva trial it is reasonable to conclude that matched monotherapy in terminal patients with an mtor or a hormonal modulator in the advanced cancer setting is not effective the corollary you know for instance for for in in that trial for ret right we have phenomenal therapies for ret we have selprocatinib and prasitinib approved last year and i see those patients uh, every day in, in clinic benefiting from treatment for ret they matched imatinib for ret imatinib does not target ret so that was the match in shiva for ret patients they matched imatinib so it is reasonable to conclude that matched monotherapy with these agents in refractory patients is not effective the corollary that all precision medicine is a failure uh, and extrapolates a finite observations in the trial to setting that were not adequately explored uh, in shiva trial and hence is uh, a not a justifiable argument are there uh, are there some other studies like shiva that are on, ongoing right now there are uh, in there are like uh, you know a couple of trials that are ongoing but you know uh, let, let me take a step back and explain what we need in precision oncology again again it, it is you know one of the major stumbling blocks in precision oncology is that that there are intrinsic and acquired resistance mechanisms to targeted therapy and all these trials are being done in terminal cancer patients one drug matched to a driver aberration may not be realistically be expected to cure patients or achieve remissions if each tumor has a distinct and complex alteration right so the more we sequence patients you know all these patients are malignant snowflakes every patient's genomic makeup is different mm-hmm. you pick up every you know commercial you know profiling report you pick up every caris report you pick up every foundation medicine report or an md anderson or sloan kettering report right each patient has multiple genomic aberrations right they are malignant snowflakes so one drug matched to just one of the mutations may not be realistically expected to cure patients other drugs must be added to overcome resistance so the paradigm of individualized therapy means that the traditional way that drug regimens become standard of care no longer will work yeah. canonical drug development paradigms are drug centered the drugs are the focus of the study and each patient enrolled receives the same regimen regardless of the genomic or the phenomic heterogeneity however what we see here is each tumor is different just like our faces are different our fingerprints are different each tumor has a different molecular fingerprint yeah. so we may need to test thousands of regimens in increasingly small and small subsets of patients indeed let's take this example if there are 300 drugs in oncology 
we try to combine them there are 45000 at least two drug regimens and 4.5 million three drug regimens the traditional clinical trial design model breaks down hence this conundrum is unsolvable in this era so physician so, medicine implies that patient centered trials and care should be done the patient should be the focus and drugs can therefore vary from patient to patient in this model you know what i'm envisioning it is not the drug regimen that is evaluated but rather the strategy of individualization that is evaluation so then the question comes what is the standard of proof for the strategy right and you know that that's why we need to think about uh, out of the box ideas in the era of precision oncology that new clinical trial designs may need be needed to evaluate a personalized care performance so that standard of care guidelines can include and emphasize and even mandate uh, customized uh, individual treatment that's so the one size fits all approach in oncology in the traditional model is still an anomaly that's a paper me and you need to write what would be the clinical trial design in precision oncology but let me ask you this uh, uh, vivek um so some of the drugs that you were instrumental in approving and led the clinical trial effort that led to the FDA approval were they approved uh, uh based on surrogate endpoints and on the accelerated regulatory pathway like yes. we talked yes. about yes. ret inhibitors yes. and all of that right yes so so generally speaking the accelerated regulatory pathway mandates post marketing studies mm-hmm. to demonstrate that the there's a survival benefit or there's a clinical benefit that was promised based on the surrogate endpoint approval in the accelerated pathway so how are these trials being designed Give, take us through an example of any of the drugs that you led through the accelerated pathway using a surrogate endpoint tell us what was the surrogate point what was the um, outcome and then what is the post marketing trial that the fda is watching for because in the post marketing trial you have to have a control arm i mean at some point right uh, and all accelerated pathway drugs by law i mean they are mandated to have uh, a post marketing uh, uh, trial so you know because it's so difficult to design i mean we're forced to design in the post marketing studies so can you give us an example into what type of post marketing trials are being designed for these agents that have been approved in the accelerate pathway oh absolutely i think uh, you know i i've mainly led uh, you know genome driven biomarker studies so i can give the most recent example you know selpercatinib and pralcetinib and i let me take an example of the selpercatinib because that was approved uh, first in the f- first in, in in the disease course so what we saw was you know we saw in the primary analysis set like red fusions are seen in let me go to the basics so that everyone understands here so red fusions are oncogenic drivers in 1 to 2% of lung cancer 10 to 20% of papillary thyroid cancer 60% of sporadic medullary thyroid cancer and 100% of uh, hereditary thyroid cancers and beyond these non-small cell lung cancer and thyroid cancers which are red uh, fusion and mutation driven we see a tail end of uh, red fusions less than 1% across all tumor types pancreatic cancer colorectal cancer and multiple other cancers 
So uh, when we, we, you know, this was originally designed as an early phase, phase one study, dose escalation study. We started as a phase one study. And, you know, we saw phenomenal responses in red fusion positive lung cancer and red aberrant thyroid cancer right from the second dose level. In fact, right from the first dose level. And, you know, we haven't seen, you know, such, you know, it's, it, I, I, I can say this is a unicorn, right? We haven't, we don't see such responses. I'm a phase one clinical trialist. We don't see such responses across the board. And, you know, seeing uh, these, you know, phenomenal responses, either the phase one study was expanded and amended to uh, a, a large phase two trial design where phase two basket study design where each arm enrolled uh, you know, X number of patients based on an interim analysis. So eventually in the primary analysis set, 105 patients with red fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer were enrolled. And the overall uh, objective response rate was uh, 68% with 2% CR and 66% PR, uh, including a 91% uh, you know, intracranial response rate. And you know, this was seen in patients who were treated with platinum chemotherapy and patients responded regardless of immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, you know, and prior receipt of multi-kinase inhibitor. So these are previously treated patients who did not have any options, right? Post-platinum, there are minimal options for lung cancer patients. And these patients- even the, the surrogate endpoint in this trial was overall response rate? Overall response rate. So uh, because of this, and then that was, uh, you know, uh, the refractory cohort. And then the, the, the other cohort was, you know, because, you know, these patients were doing well, you know, patients who are not eligible for platinum-based chemotherapy or patients who wanted to get on a targeted therapy upfront, 34 patients who were treatment naive, that means who did not receive immunotherapy or chemotherapy, were also enrolled on this clinical trial. The response rate in the frontline treatment naive setting was 85%. So you can see that post-platinum, post-IO, uh, in fact, IO does not even work in these patients. The response rate is 68%. And the treatment naive population, the response rate is 85%. These are phenomenal response. So the, 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 in, in the final, a total of 144 patients in the prior platinum, the response rate was 64%. In the previously untreated patients, the response rate was 85% in, uh, in a total of 39 patients. And the median duration of response was 17.5 months. So since this was active post-platinum and it was active in the refractory and the naive setting, FDA approved based on, on this data. And you know, the overall survival was not even reached because you know, the patients are still on the study. But they and we still, still continue to follow on the study. Right, but but did they approve? So, yeah, and did so they the, post market? Yeah, exactly. Post marketing, right? Although the FDA does not, for in this case, in these biomarker driven cases, the FDA does not require uh, a, a future randomized study. The the randomized study that is being done is any patient in the front line, any patient with red fusion uh, non small cell lung cancer, uh, will be randomized to a RET inhibitor, a selective RET inhibitor, or standard of care with. Uh, you know, chemotherapy, a plus or minus immunotherapy, standard of care. So again, what we saw from ALK, right? I think these arms, especially for these novel targeted therapies in lung cancer, they're going to crush the chemotherapy arms. I think we should extrapolate from what we saw right. from the ALK and, and the EGFR 
you know, driver mutation subsets. You know, again, these are just one to two percent of lung cancer, and I, I, you know, I'm thinking, you know, we are. Again, uh, the, the trial is being done, but personally, I would feel that I'm, we are comfortable in giving this selective rate inhibitor to a frontline patient, you know, seeing these responses. Oh, very good example. And thank you for sharing that with us, Vivek. That's a really nice example. Um, and it's a, it's a good, you know, I mean, the question is, it seems like the FDA may not mandate always post-marketing trials for these. Exactly. But, but, you know, as you see, you know, the controversy is now for drugs, for that Alzheimer's disease drug, and also for checkpoints that are being approved without a biomarker, right? Yeah. So the they receive accelerated approval based on single arm data, and the post marketing uh, randomized study failed to beat standard of you know standard of care, but still they remain to be approved, right? So that that is the area of controversy that you mm. know uh, you know that that may take time for it to settle down. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I think it's also really challenging to enroll to a randomized trial. Look, I mean, I'm thinking if you are in the 1% to 2% of yeah. patients who really had this RET, R-E-T fusion, yeah. if you're in the 1%, 2%, how happy are you going to be being randomized to a chemotherapy versus knowing there's an actual targeted therapy that really works for this specific mutation? So I'd say it's not easy to do a randomized trial like this, honestly. And I think kudos to all patients who are willing to undergo randomization for this to try to answer an important scientific question, because I could imagine that will be a very uneasy feel. Hopefully that there is access to the new drug at the time of progression and there's a crossover. Oh, absolutely. There is definitely a crossover. The thing is that it will be tough you know, uh, in the uh, to accrue in the U.S. So this has to be. These are global studies, and again, yeah. red inhibitors are not approved in many countries, right? Yeah. So yeah. If, these, if, if these trials are global, the trials can be done. Of course, in many countries, the trial will pay for standard of care therapy as well. So I think you know yeah. it, it'll be you know one, one way or the other good for the for the patients. I don't know if you, you know the answer to this, but it got me curious when you mentioned some of the patients that you have, you end up sequencing and you have like 40 mutations or whatever. How easy to develop drugs for mutations that don't have drugs for? I mean, at some point 20 years ago, obviously RET fusions existed. We just did not have drugs and we never really checked for them. Right now we check for this. So when you identify these mutations, is it easy to go back to the lab and try to manufacture a new drug and develop a drug that targets this mutation? Is that, I mean, how how long does that take? Like, is there a process uh, at MD Anderson? Are you guys involved in that piece or is it mainly manufacturers and biopharma? Tell, take us through that. I think that's a great question. And I think the more we sequence patients, you know, the first step is one of the most important things is when we sequence patients in the real world, we will know the length and breadth of the genomic alterations that are prevalent in the general population so that we can make drugs for. And, you know, we need to expand the druggable genome. So, you know, we have RET, MET, AKT, ERBB2, FGFR, FLIT3, IDH1, IDH2, mTOR pathway uh, drugs, BRAF, NTRAC, NRG1, PA3K, and there's a whole another field for homologous recombination deficiency, like the BRCA1, BRCA2, PALB, 
B2, RAD50, ATM, uh, RAD51, check 12, and then we have the EGFR, we have TSC1 and SMART A123. And so many alterations being developed in 2000. So I can give an example for the RET. 25 years ago, RET was one of the first uh, uh, fusions or rearrangements to be cloned. And at that time, there was uh, no, no, no treatment for that. But in 2012, 2012, red fusions were discovered in lung cancer, just in 2012, right? And 2014, I believe, they, uh, red fusions were discovered in colorectal cancer. And 2017, we had two red inhibitors, selective red inhibitors in clinic, in first in human clinical trials. 2017, we started the phase one study and 2020, we got two drugs approved for these patients. And 2021, we have another three selective red drugs, you know, uh, a couple of them next generation drugs that, that can help. So again, when we have the identify these genes, you know, a lot of researchers in major academic centers and pharma companies, you know, work on, you know, who are working on in structural biology and drug discovery, come up with novel kinase inhibitors. I think, you know, right now, today, in 2021, we have better technology than we had two years ago and three years ago. So the next decade is going to be phenomenal in drug development, right? Not just kinases, kinase inhibitors. Uh, you know, there are protein degraders, there are molecular glues, and, 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 and the whole new field of antibody drug conjugates. We had antibody drug conjugates, of course, in hematology, but again, the technology is developed. And, and the sequencing is developed. Now, you know, the drug structure and, and how they make the drug, the structural biologists, uh, you know, they start, have started using artificial intelligence to, to, to identify drugs to fit the right allosteric pocket. So for instance, Keras G12C, yeah. Keras was undruggable. Like right now, it's I, up. I'll tell you a funny story. I was a first year fellow, 19, oh, I'm not gonna give that, no way. I mean, but <laughs> no way I'm telling you when I was, a first-year fellow, and I was uh, listening one of the grand rounds, and NCI was, was a speaker from the NCI. The entire talk about KRAS and how it's impossible to target the and like the whole talk was how you know RAS is an awful oncogene that nobody really can can target and 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 so on. And look at where we are now. I mean, we yeah. target uh, the the KRAS and and all of that. Yeah. Again, there are 30 targets now, promising genomic targets, right? This list is only the first iteration of a continuous process. Is, and, is, you know, your yeah. sense, is your sense that you can combine those? So, for example, I know some mutations are mutually exclusive. Like, you know, if you have a, uh, a RET fusion, you may not have something else and so on, all of that stuff. But, but not all of them are as such. When you have a tumor that might have several targets, is there a sense that you have one of them that is the main driver that really leading to the cancer progression where this is the one to target or are they all equally effect, uh, important? You have to use three drugs, each one targets both and you have to do a trial for that. How, how do you look at that? Again, uh, you know, the, the, that, that's a good question. So the thing is that, you know, of course, even in these patients, right? Even in these, you know, patients, for instance, red fusions, we haven't had complete response in all patients, right? We see partial responses and maybe a handful of complete responses. And 
you know, we need to understand, uh, you know, first, you know, tumor is complex, right? Uh, you know, the, we, we need to know more about, still our understanding about so many things is very nascent. We need to understand first about tumor growth, right? We have, these scans are still primitive. We need to have dynamic monitoring. We need to have better functional imaging studies. And also, you know, the drug resistance could be from tumor burden, tumor heterogeneity, and how do we come, you know, overcome the tumor heterogeneities early detection. Again, we are, we are diagnosing cancers and we are trying to treat cancers in the late stage when they have complex genomes. So that's why we need to have early detection. And of course, customized combination therapies. You know, customized combination therapies can, can definitely uh, impact upon uh, but, but the challenge is, you, you might ask, how are we going to combine them? So, you know, again, uh, how, you know, is there a, we, do we need to do a phase one study in uh, every patient, right? So right now, what we practice in the day-to-day -day clinic is one-size-fits-all treatment model. I think the one-size-fits-all is, is an anomaly. In daily medical practice, you know, physicians always use customized combinations, especially in non-malignant conditions, right? A patient with diabetes, you know, like say heart failure or rheumatoid arthritis receives a set of different drugs. You know, none of these diabetic drugs, if there are three diabetic drugs approved and Michael on two diabetic drugs and three different antihypertensive drugs, it was never tested as a phase one clinical trial. Right. But the general medical practitioner is able to combine them in the clinic, right? I, I think and, I think toxicity I think toxicity is a little bit an issue probably it's just, exactly the so the average patient enters the oncology clinic with an approximately eight to ten drugs tailored to their specific health problems and these individual combinations were never tested in phase one studies yet physicians safely and effectively administer them on a regular basis so in oncology I think we have a cultural precept that if a new drug combination has not been tested in phase one studies. It should not be used because the safety is not, is not known. And this is a legacy or the vestige from the cytotoxic era, since combining cytotoxics could have serious safety concerns. Again, the modern anti-cancer drugs like immunotherapy or targeted therapy have very few prohibitive overlapping adverse effects, except a few. And our understanding of drug combinations has grown. And one size fits all is not the norm in medicine. And since advanced cancers and cancers are heterogeneous, it should cease to be the norm in oncology care. Again, you know, these can be controversial for what I say. You know, we don't even practice this in clinic, but I feel personally that this is what we got to do if we need to make, uh, you know, advances in, in, in oncology. You know, again, I read on Time magazine that even with the current rate of research and new drugs, what we do in oncology, It'll take another 1,200 years for us to cure cancer because unless there is some major breakthrough, you know, every decade like immunotherapy or something, it, it's going to take a I'm long not, time. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it'll ever cure all cancers. It's just, uh, you know, people have to die of something. I mean, I, I maybe the, the pragmatic person in me. Exactly. I mean, you know, I'd love to cure all ailments, not just cancer, heart disease and strokes and, and everything. I just don't see that Everybody is going to age and live forever. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll see. Uh, Vivek, you, you've been very. First of all, you've been very generous with your time and 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 uh, telling us about all of this. 
Um, I want to just give listeners a personal flavor of who you are because you've had really a, a wonderful career. Where, I mean, I follow uh, you and your achievements and what you're doing, and and it's amazing what you've accomplished. In my opinion, again, in less than a decade since you finished your fellowship, how did this happen? Because you know, part of this is definitely uh, your passion, your dedication, your hard work. But any, like, were you influenced by somebody? Were you, did you get lucky with certain things? Did somebody mentor you? Just tell us how, it's a little bit unusual. It's a very, very wonderful, successful academic career, but uh, it's not really a usual trajectory for many academicians. How do you attribute, who do you attribute this success to? Vivek, don't, don't forget to mention your wife, buddy. No, no, absolutely. And again, I got, you know, let me thank from, from, from high school days. I think I need to thank my mom and grandpa who are very instrumental in motivating me right from, right, right from day one. All right. And I always used to push things and do something different. In fact, I don't know if you may know, I'm both, a med, I'm both board certified in medicine and pediatrics. I did MedPeach for residency. I did not know that. And I'm a pediatric oncologist and a medical oncologist. I did both. I did dual training. I did dual training here at MD Anderson. Again, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to do both uh, love kids and uh, you know, take care of adults and kids. So I did dual training for residency and then for fellowship, there were a few programs that offered both. And in fact, there was, there's no program that offers, we have to make it up. So MD Anderson has both a pediatric and adult uh, medical oncology fellowship. And I, I, I did that. And then um, of course I came here and you know, I was uh, influenced by I, I would say several, several people here, you know, several mentors, uh, primarily, uh, you know, first in my, in, in my fellowship, I was uh, mentored by Pete Anderson. He was here. He was a pediatric, uh, you know, adult and uh, pediatric sarcoma doctor and uh, Dr. Jeannie Kleinemann in, in pediatrics. She was a basic scientist who he, in fact, she came up, she discovered one of the first immunotherapies that was approved in osteosarcoma. Not many people know, uh, it's called mifamurotide. It is approved in Europe and Mexico and many other countries, not in the US. I think, you know, 20 years ago, it was approved for osteosarcoma. It was a first immunotherapy. And then uh, Dr. Razel Kurzrak, you know, she was here, she was leading the uh, uh, phase one clinical trials program, histology independent clinical trials program. And Dr. Emil Freirek, Dr. Emil Freirek was here. And I, I had, the, I was fortunate to directly work with him as uh, the GME administrative fellow, had a lot of face time with him, had, used to chat a lot with him. And, you know, again, these are the people who primarily uh, shaped my early career at MD Anderson. In fact, you know, I had, my, my research was varied. My, I had research in leukemia, in germ cell tumor, in sarcoma, in, in, in pediatrics. So, the, you know, again, I, I, I I interviewed so many people, in fact, to get on to do lab. And it was Dr. Kurzrak, he, you know, she said, you have so much energy, you want to do so much. I think, uh, let's do all this. I think, you know, she, she, she was a nice, you know, she was a great mentor because she said, do what you want to do. You know, if, if, you, if you're passionate to do something, go ahead. I think she, she gave, instead of trusting their agenda in you, I think they, they let you, you know, such mentors let you do what, what you want to do and give you, give you space, time, and also channel you in the di right direction. 
And I think uh, when I finished uh, my fellowship and I started on as faculty, I think Dr. Kurzak retired from here and she, she moved, I stayed back on. And my, my mentor, guide and philosopher here was uh, my wife. She was a fellow here. She matched here for MD Anderson as a Hemong fellow. So um, I, 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 I was with her and, and you know, she was my mentor. I think she was my friend, philosopher and guide. It, it is challenging when you transition to a new faculty, uh, you know, especially everyone in your department is very, very senior and you're the junior most person there. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging time, but I think it was the best and worst of times. I think, uh, you know, and then, you know, uh, uh, subsequently we had, uh, you know, chair uh, here who was a visionary as well, uh, Dr. Fanda Merrick Bernstein and, 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 and Dr. David Hong, who recently uh, led the KRAS. I think they've been of great support and uh, encouragement to what I, I really envisioned and what I really want to do. The thing is that MD Anderson is a phenomenal place. I think you know, the patients give a lot of motivation. The patients give hope. And you know, as, as, you, as you know, you know, we all live in hope. We all live our lives in the future. We base most of our decisions on experience of the past, but we have a limited ability to envision the potential for major changes in the future. And you know, consider this, like 30, 40 years ago, uh, the outlook for patients with coronary artery disease you know, was 100%. And this has declined to less than 10% now. In many fields of medicine, there is continuous progress. You know, we see that in COVID. COVID was what? In, in March, January, 2000, you know, last year, in nine months, we had a drug. We had a vaccine. You know, of course, we are still working on therapeutics. We have a vaccine. I think, you know, in, in cancer is in such a phase. I think we need to work. Everyone needs to work diligently and aggressively like people worked for COVID to, to get cancer well, treatment for, for every patient. You're doing your part. You're doing a great job. You're doing uh, your part, and you've been extremely productive, uh, influential. I think, I know you probably, uh, I stopped counting, uh, but you're close to 10 drugs, I believe, that you were, you were really uh, instrumental in bringing to market. And uh, uh, there are no questions that some patients' lives have been saved because of your efforts. Um, and really, um, uh, I think uh, we're very proud of what you're doing, Vivek, and uh, just continue the, uh, the, the good work. Um, any last thoughts before uh, I'll let you go back to your mentor? Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the wonderful opportunity and space. It's, uh, it was really fun to talk about this. You know, sometimes you talk to someone and they ask questions, then you think aloud about the topic. And we still have to th we still have to think about writing that piece. Uh, you got me thinking about this clinical trial design. I don't think it's an easy question to answer. No, to. it's not an easy question. You know, we, I think for myself, and you know, what we are doing right now is not the way. You know, if, if we are going to move the cancer needle up, I think we need to do um, a, a different model of clinical trial design. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just putting, like, I just put myself in the shoes. I, I understand. I mean, I'm a big proponent of randomized control trial, but if I really have that one to two percent mutation with that specific drug that targets that mutation, am I comfortable getting another agent on exactly? So anyway, I think it's there's a lot of food for thought. I'd be curious to see what listeners think about the conversations that we the conversation we had. 
And let's think about writing this piece. Let's uh, let's sit on it and think about it. I can't let you go before we do like a usual, we have to do like a quick picture because, uh, you yeah. know. You, all right. Let me take a quick picture, yeah. Yeah, look in, look in the mirror, my friend. Here you are. Okay, now this is going to be on Twitter. Okay, let and, me uh, just take a picture as well, yeah. I don't know how you take a picture. How do you take a picture on Zoom? No, I'll take a picture on Zoom. I, I have a uh, have a tool here. Yeah, you, you just look in the camera. All right, I need All to, right. Uh, I need to um, figure this out. I need to learn more about Zoom. Oh, let's see. No, 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 no. I think it's it's see? it didn't get I shared. Could, I just used the plain old uh, mobile phone. That's really what I did. No, let me get a better picture. No, that, that is a snipping tool here. We can just take a screenshot of this. Listeners, what listeners are doing right now, they are witnessing two board-certified medical oncologists in healthcare unfiltered, struggling, not having a clue how to get a picture on Zoom. I know. <laughs> True. <laughs> All right. All right, Vivek. Uh, keep up right, the good work. You. Wonderful to talk to you and look forward to having you again on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate you tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode with Dr. Vavik Subaya and learned a lot about precision oncology. Let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or emailing me or email me at uh, chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You're certainly welcome to visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Check out all the features and send me a note there. Appreciate your support. Please subscribe to the show, rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague, and write a brief review. You can also check out all of these episodes, all of my podcasts on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can watch all of the video exchange and all of the facial expressions. How could you not? How could you not watch that? Check it out on YouTube. Thank you, everyone. Until next time, take care.